Thank you so much. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Psalms, the wonderful hymn book of God's people, to Psalm 84. Please look in Psalm 84. It has 12 verses. I'm going to read 12 verses. But before I do, I just want to tell you how much I've been looking forward to being here with you. Years ago at Camp Hope, I met a young man. He was young then, both of us were, named Doug Dixon, working at the camp. A little bit later, I met uh, Danny, working with the Good News on the Move team, and then David, and then at, in Yosemite National Park in 2012, I met quite a few of you there, and it really gave us a desire to come and meet the rest of you at Claremont Bible Chapel, and here we are today. In fact, I was here before, back in the mid-80s, when I came home from Africa, and I enjoyed visiting Claremont Bible Chapel there, but I can hardly remember. So I'm glad to have the refresher and to get to meet many of you for the first time and to see some of you again. Well, we trust that as we read in Psalm 84, I'm reading in the New King James translation, that you'll notice the sweetness of this psalm. Look, if you will, and follow as I read. Psalm 84 says, How lovely or how amiable is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Selah. Verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Verse 9, O God, behold our shield, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Verse 12 says, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And we'll trust we'll know the Lord's blessing from the reading of his word. It is a beautiful psalm. If you were to put a title on the psalm, this title would be very fitting. Let's call it the Pilgrim Psalm. And so the Pilgrim Psalm reminds us that we are all on a journey, our pilgrimage. Looking at this nice psalm, I came across a, a good quote from C.H. Spurgeon. All of his quotes are, well, he was really the prince of preachers. Here's what he said about Psalm 84. Comparing it, he said, if Psalm 23 is the most popular, and Psalm 103 is the most joyful, if Psalm 51 is the most sorrowful, and Psalm 119 is the most exhaustive, then Psalm 84 would have to be the most sweet. It does have a sweetness about it, doesn't it? 
because it reminds us that along our pilgrim journey, there are places we stop, Selah, in fact, easily dividing these 12 verses into three sections, four verses each, you have an equal stop along the way where we can just kind of catch our breath. To put a little subtitle on these three paragraphs, an excellent outline, and I say that because it's not mine. Oh, I try to come up with my own outlines, but if you get a good one, you should use it. And I try not to copy too many outlines, but I can count on one hand the number of times I have. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> you got the idea, don't you? So this outline comes from John Bramhall, J.W. Bramhall, who's with the Lord. He was born in 1899, went to be with the Lord in 2001. That's three centuries and two millennia he lived. And he was a, a dear friend and a, a very fatherly figure to us in the Lord. So here's his outline. The first paragraph, verses 1 through 4, is how to find God. And that's the most important, isn't it? You have to find him. You know, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And we seek him, and he seeks for us how to find God, verses 1 through 4. And then it says Selah. We're going to stop and think about that when we get to that point. Verses 5 through 8 is all about how to follow God. You know, once we find him, we want to follow him from here all the way home to heaven. And so we're going to talk about how to follow God, verses 5 through 8. And then verses 9 through 12, the last paragraph, how to fellowship with God. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe not only wants a relationship with us, but wants us to enjoy fellowship with him on our way home to glory? And that's those last four verses verses 9 through 12. It doesn't say Selah, but by that time we're going to close in prayer, so it'll be a, a rest to consider what we've heard. But let's start with this very first paragraph and just mention to you in the inscription that it's to the chief musician. Now, every time I read that, I think of the Lord Jesus. Do you know he is in the very midst of his people leading our praise unto the Father? So there's our chief musician. It's to be performed on an instrument of gath, which means a press, like a wine press or an oil press. Uh, you would recognize the name and that word used in some of the names of the familiar places, like gath itself or Gethsemane. It was the olive press. You know, that's where the best songs come when the pressures of life come in and the stress pushes out the sweetness that's in our hearts. And so it's to be performed on an instrument of gath. It is a psalm. Are you ready for this? A psalm of the sons of Korah. Korah. Oh, yes, the rebels back in the wilderness. Well, these are those rebels who came to the Lord. And, well, I'm from the South. I know what it means to be a rebel. And we also understand and relate that we have a rebellious heart, don't we? And yet the Lord, by his marvelous grace, can give us a heart for him. And the psalm is from the sons of Korah. And they performed it, and we can enjoy it, paragraph by paragraph. First of all, this first paragraph, written, no doubt, to commemorate one of the feast times when the pilgrim is away from home. Three different feasts out of the seven, the children of Israel were responsible to appear before God 
in Jerusalem or in Zion. The Passover, of course, the Feast of Pentecost, that's 50 days later, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, where they actually camped out in Jerusalem for eight days. One of those feasts or celebrations must have been the setting for this psalm, but the pilgrim is away from home. You'll pick that up without a doubt as we just see the pilgrim's description in verse 1. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. Now I mentioned your translation might say how amiable. Other translations, how magnificent. In other words, you can use all the adjectives your little heart can muster when it comes to talking about a description of the Lord's dwelling places. And you'll never have to worry about heaven reprimanding you for exaggeration. I've told my wife Nancy a million times not to exaggerate. Okay? <laughs> All right? So you understand when it comes to talking about the greatness of God and of his dwelling, you don't have to worry about exaggeration. You can use magnificent, beautiful, lovely, amiable, anything you want to use. Just make it good because when it comes to God's dwelling place, this pilgrim he wanted to describe it in a way, and he yearned for it with his heart. And so when it came to the description of his heart, he says, how beautiful, how lovely, how amiable. But you might ask yourself, what makes it so special? Now, if you looked at the picture of the tabernacle of old on the outside, you would not be impressed. But it's his presence. That's where God dwells. That's what makes it so special. Well, let's just make this personal, if you don't mind. Look at me. You got to for the next 35 minutes, all right? If you look on the outward appearance that we have, you would say, what's so special about him? Listen, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what makes his dwelling place special. And so the pilgrim, he is really thinking about being home and being there with all the saints in God's presence. And he speaks about the tabernacle, that meeting place, the only one of its kind, and the only one in the world at that time. And he has a description that really expresses how beautiful it is. But verse 2, he expresses his desire to be there. And that's where we really relate. It says, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. God's dwelling place at that time, everyone wanted, wanted to be there. The kings, when Solomon built the temple, and the queens came from the farthest parts of the world just to see. You think of the Queen of Sheba. I've heard of it, but now I've seen it. The half hath not been told me because she saw the greatness of this dwelling place. And it caused a desire for everyone who had ever been there to go back. And that was certainly true among the Jews. But you think just for a moment, we have a gathering center too, don't we? And the beauty of our gathering center is not the building, although we're thankful for it. Padded pews, we believe in the comfort of the saints here, don't we? But you know, it's not the building or the physical place we meet in. It's his presence and our desire to be there. How much do you desire it? How bad do you want it? Ask the invalid who would be here if she could be. Ask the salesman who's on the road and can't get back home. 
missing home and thinking about it. You, you don't know how important it is to gather together like this until you lose it or miss it. And so this pilgrim on a journey, he said, I long for it in my heart and my soul. My flesh cries out for the living God. I don't know how your trip is, was into the meeting today. But if your kids ask you from the back seat, oh, Dad, do we have to go? How did you answer them? Did you say, yeah, we have to go? Or did you say, yes, my heart and my soul are crying out for the gathering of the people of God? Is that the way you answered? I hope so. That's the way the pilgrim answered when he expressed his desire to be there. Verse 3 tells us just what this destination is all about. And this is the beauty. Thank you for the verse behind me. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look what we have in verse 3. The destination for the pilgrim is this. Even the sparrow has found a home. Now that's the first thing we want to just think about. Do you know, before I trusted the Lord as my Savior, I was really all alone. I could be in a crowd and I felt completely alone. But when I came to Christ, I found a home and a family. There's no place like being with the family of God. Even the sparrow. Well, that's a pretty insignificant bird, isn't it? Matthew tells us, as he quotes the Lord, that you can get two sparrows for a copper coin. Luke, though he was Greek, he drove a better bargain. He said, you can get five for two. That's two for one plus two for one plus throw one in for good measure. A sparrow is not a very significant bird, but the Lord said, the father's eye is on the sparrow. Not one sparrow falls that he doesn't notice it. You're of more value than many sparrows, aren't you? He has a home for you. The sparrow has found a home. The next line says, the swallow found a nest for herself. I didn't ever know much about birds, but I'm starting to pay attention and learn more about birds. I shared that with a good friend of mine. He says, yes, as you get older, you start looking at birds, watching birds. They are amazing, aren't they? I mean, the Lord just feeds the birds, doesn't he? I put the bird in the bird feeder and they eat it right up. And then I say, all right, you're the Lord's responsibility now. Huh? You ate all that expensive food. Huh? The swallow, that's a different kind of bird. In fact, the sparrow and the swallow are found together in a psalm. It's Psalm 26 and it's verse 2. Let me read it for you. It says... Well, he compares it to a curse that has no cause. He said, it's like a flitting sparrow and a flying swallow. <laughs> they never light. They're always busy running here and there. Does that sound like us? When we worked in Africa, we had, well, just in our little village of Eton Day in the northeast corner of what is called now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Back in my day, it was Zaire. In that northeast corner, just in our little village of Day, we had about seven different tribes. And all the different tribes, there were 200 tribes in Zaire as a whole, as a country. Over 200 tribes. It was amazing. And so every tribe had a different name. There was the Walendu, the Wangiti, the Wahindu. I mean, there were all different tribes. The Wahema, the Wanyali. And I wondered since it was just Nancy and me there the second year, what do they call us? <laughs> and they said, oh, you're the Wazungu. 
And we would hear them as we'd be walking along, and they would say, look, there go the Wazungu. Well, as I learned more about Swahili, I found out why they called us the Wazungu. I figured it might be because we were so intelligent. <laughs> you know, the root word for Wazungu is Kuzunguluka, and it literally means to go around in circles. <laughs> That's the way they saw us. We're running here, we're running there, we're flying in, we're flying out, we're doing this, we're doing that. And the African brethren, they just knew, just keep right on trotting away and don't worry about the wazungu. They're just going around in circles getting dizzy. You know, we're really a lot like the sparrow and the swallow, aren't we? Flitting and flying. But look what you find when you come to the Lord. You find a home and you find a nest. And look at the rest of that one statement where the swallow has a nest for herself where she may lay her young. I love that statement. I'm picturing in the tabernacle birds building a nest in the furnishings of the tabernacle and the priest being kind enough to just let them stay there. When we come to the Lord, we come to a home. We come to a nest. But did you notice? That's where the, the swallow is going to lay her young. God works on the family plan, doesn't he? Well, that's what Acts tells us. As Paul spoke to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And we usually stop there and put an exclamation point there for good measure. But the verse doesn't stop there. It says to believe, in other words, put your trust in the Lord as your Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And the rest of the verse says, and your house. Now, it doesn't mean that a whole household gets saved, but they can, but they have to come one at a time. If your father and mother are believers, you can't count on their faith counting for your faith. Every single person, every individual has to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ by putting their personal faith in the Lord for themselves. But there is nothing more thrilling than to be able to say as a father, as a grandfather, that all your children have come to Christ. That's what God wants, and that's what we want too. So you think of this great destination God has provided. It's a home. It's a nest. It's a family. And then he says, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, it really is a resting place. The altars of the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't want to get into too much teaching part on this verse but there were two altars in the tabernacle when you enter the tabernacle in the outer court the first furniture fur, piece of furniture you saw was this huge altar called the altar the brazen altar of burnt offering it represented the sacrifice and death of the sacrifice for the one who was coming and making his approach that's the first altar the other altar is on the inside in the holy place right outside the Holy of Holies, and it was called the Golden Altar of Incense. The first altar represented sacrifice and death. The other altar, the Altar of Incense, represented praise, and the incense and the smoke went up. I have to tell you what I see in this is the way of entrance into God's presence. How to find God? Well, he put a dwelling place so we could find him. 
And the first thing he reminds us is it must be a sacrifice. But not a sacrifice like in the Old Testament of bulls and goats or lambs or even a turtle dove. But a sacrifice that would be the fulfillment of all the sacrifices of old. Even the sacrifice, you know it, don't you? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. All of our sins, the sins of the whole world. You know, that used to, that used to cause me a lot of questions before I came to know the Lord as my Savior. My major question that kept me from coming to know Christ as my Savior was this. When Jesus died for sins, my sins, was it just my past sins up to a certain point? Or would it also be my future sins because I'd already tried to stop sinning a number of times? <laughs> And I just couldn't do it. The answer I got when I finally got the courage to ask the question, the answer I got was excellent. They asked me another question for the answer. You know, that's what the Lord used to do. You can almost think about it this way. Every time the Lord, somebody asked the Lord a question, he often asked a question in return. Well, here's the nice setting. Rabbi, Rabbi, why do you always answer our question with a question? And the rabbi said, do I do that? So I asked the question. I mean, it took me months to get up the courage. I said, were all my sins paid for or just the ones up to that point? Just my past sins. So the question I got as my answer was, when Jesus died on the cross, were your sins past, present, or future? I said, well, they were all future. I wasn't even here yet. And he said, there's your answer. Now, I did have to go think about it for a while. But when I realized all my sins were laid on him, it made me appreciate that he was the supreme sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, past, present, and even future. Now, I don't know if you would have a question like that, but if you did, I'm glad you got the answer now. All our sins were laid on him. He nailed them to the tree. Gone forever. The very moment you put your trust in him, you'll never see your sins again. What a relief. What a rest. And that's what he's talking about. For the sparrow, for the swallow, a home, a nest, a family, a rest. Where are you going to rest in this life? We're just constantly going. But my faith, has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Listen, Jesus paid it all. He didn't leave anything undone. When he said from the cross, it is finished, he bowed his head. He rested. And he rested in his finished work of Calvary. And he calls us, just like this nice verse on the back, Come unto me, all you that labor and I will, and are heavy laden, and I will give as a free gift you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. And you won't find it anywhere else. You won't find it in psychology or in any kind of academic study. You won't find it in any kind of society. The only place you find rest like this is in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Done is the work that saves. Done every bit. 
Now, that's how you find God. You have to find him where he's at in his dwelling place. And there you find him, well, like verse 4 says. Look at verse 4. It says, blessed are those who dwell where? In your house. They will still be praising you. Selah. Now, we've got to stop and think about it. That's what Selah means. I heard of one lady who was working south of the border with some non-English speaking people who were learning English and as they read in their English Bible they came across that word Selah. You know in language study some get a little further along than the others and so when they saw that word Selah in the English Bible they said Selah what does Selah mean? And before the Bible teacher could answer one of the new English students said it means stop thinking don't stop thinking. <laughs> stop and think. Stop and think what it means that you can find the Savior through the finished work of Calvary on the cross where Jesus died to pay for our sins. That other altar represents the resurrection. It's not that he died and only that he died, but he was raised from the dead. If there's no resurrection, his death doesn't count for us. But because God raised him from the dead... When you put your trust in him, you have a certainty of knowing my sins were paid for, the payment was accepted, and I have on the basis of Christ's finished work the wonderful gift, the free gift of eternal life. That's how you find God. Have you found him? He's searching for you. Once you find him, you want to follow him. And starting in verse 5, we see that in this pilgrim journey of a pilgrim psalm, he gives us, first of all, for following him, the strength to start the journey. In verse 5, he says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Uh, that's how you get the strength to start. You've got to have a heart for the start. And God always starts at the heart. For those who have put their trust in him, he moves right into our hearts by faith. And then from the heart, he leads us along and he gives us all the strength we need, the strength to start. We have to know that we have a pilgrim's heart. Uh, the way the nice gospel song expressed it always is a good reminder to me. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, okay? And so... Our life really is a journey. If we know the Lord, we're going home to glory. And so he says, here's the strength you need to start. Just realize that you're not putting your roots down deep in this world. We're only here for a very short time. It'll help you to follow the Lord freely. Abraham is about the best example of a pilgrim, isn't he? In fact, he reminds us that we're all pilgrims and strangers. There were two things that Abraham is known for that are characteristic about his pilgrimage. He had a tent and he had an altar. And you'll see him moving into the promised land, coming all the way from the Chaldean area. And as he comes in, he has a tent and he has an altar. He pitched his tent. In other words, he set up his tent and he built the altar. As he pitched his tent, it reminded him, I'm just a stranger here. I'm not putting down roots. As he built his altar, he said, I'm a pilgrim on my way there. We need to remember that, don't we? 
We're just pilgrims and strangers. Now his nephew Lot, you can learn a lot from Lot. <laughs> a lot of what not to do. While Abraham pitched his tent and built the altar, well, Lot, his nephew, he built his tent and pitched the altar. You never see an altar in Lot's life, but you do in Abraham. He's a good example to follow. He had the strength to start because his heart was already set on the fact, I'm just a stranger here. I'm just a pilgrim. Never forget that. We're going home one day to a place we've never been. He not only gives us strength to start in verse 5, in verse 6 he gives us strength to share. Strength to share along the way? Oh, absolutely. Look what he says in verse 6. As they pass through the valley of Baca, it, it represents those semi-arid areas, the dry times in our life, that when we go through hard times, we learn some very important lessons. Look on a little further in verse 6. When they go through those desert areas, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. The dry times of life, the desert areas. I understand as the pilgrim made it through the desert, many times along the way they would run out of water and supplies. And so the key was just to start digging down. I don't know if that works in Death Valley or not. Okay. <clears throat> We're glad to have rest stops along the way, aren't we? But I understood the, understand the pilgrims used to just dig down into the sand, and if they dug down far enough, they would find some moisture, a little bit more, and they would get just enough water to continue their journey and survive. After they dug down deep enough for the water, they would just leave those holes open. And when the rains did come, it would fill up all the holes, and it would be like pools along the way. Now, it doesn't help the first person too much, but he got the water he needed. The next pilgrim coming along, he gets the advantage of the first person who dug the hole to begin with. That makes sense, doesn't it? Would you know that's what we're supposed to do in our journey? When we go through the hard times of life, we dig down into the Word of God, get the refreshment we need in order to make it through the journey. And then we leave that fresh for the next person that goes through trials and tests. Now, you have to be very careful here. In fact, hold your place there. Let's go over to the New Testament for a moment. I want to show you the great principle that I'm going to refer to. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I've shared this many times at home, this verse, or two verses. And oftentimes, friends will call me up and say, where is that verse? So look at it with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And this would be like a New Testament explanation of what we're talking about, those desert times in life, digging holes and leaving pools for the next person. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it starts with that same word we started with in this paragraph, blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now in 2 Corinthians 1, 4, we read, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Now that's the first pilgrim going through, digging a hole, getting the moisture, finding the water to survive. But look at the rest of verse 4. 
that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, here's the way it works. The pilgrim going through the desert, he digs the hole, he gets what he needs. The rains fill up and becomes pools, so the next person, he gets the same comfort, refreshment, and relief along the way because of the man who went before him. When you go through trials, remember what God used to comfort you so that when somebody else in this pilgrim journey goes through a trial, it doesn't have to be the same trial, it could be just something else that is still a trial. When they go through that, you can tell them, and this is where you have to be careful, you might want to make a note here. You can tell them what helped you. Don't tell them what happened to you. There's a big difference, you know. I mean, if they broke their arm, don't tell them about when you broke your leg. It won't help them. Just tell them the relief that you got from the promises of God's word. I make this a practice whenever I visit someone in the hospital, especially before surgery. I never tell them what happened to somebody I know, and certainly not what happened to me. But I have been in on visits before where others came to help visit. I remember David, not this David, another David. I remember David going in for surgery, and we had gone in, I met with him, I read a verse, a promise from God's word, I prayed, and right after I prayed in his pre-op room, one of the sisters from the meeting came in to see him too, and she said, so what you haven't done, David? And David told her, I had an uncle that died from that. And I was horrified. I looked at her. I looked at David. And you know, David was just smiling. And I looked at the, RV, uh, the IV and it was already dripping. <laughs> he was happy. I don't think he remembered a word that she said. <laughs> but I'll never forget it, believe me. So here's the thing as you go back to Psalm 84. When you go through times of trials and tests, find what God gives you in the word as a promise and claim it. It'll get you through the hard times. And then when somebody else goes through trials, tell them what got you through. God hasn't comforted us, as we read, just for us. He's given us the comfort to share. It's strength not only to start the journey, strength to share with others along the way. As Brother Jabe said, there are a lot of ups and downs in life, but thankfully the last one is up. This journey, it, it gets very difficult sometimes in life. But be encouraged. God will bring you through. Look at verse 7. Here's what it says. They go from strength to strength. Remember we started with strength to start and strength to share. Now we see that we go from strength to strength. I believe that means strength to sustain us along the way. We go from strength to strength. It's a progressive thing, isn't it? We learn little by little. That's how God would give the children of Israel the land of promise. He said, I'm not going to give it to you all in one time. It would overwhelm you. I'm going to give you the land little by little. We see God's truth revealed how? From faith to faith, Romans chapter 1. We go and grow from glory to glory. And here we move from strength to strength. At summer camp last week, we went from meal 
to meal. <laughs> and it was good. That was pretty much our schedule, you know, meeting and eating. But for the believer, isn't it nice that along the way, you have other pilgrims that encourage you. Strength to start, strength to share, strength to sustain you as you make your journey homeward to heaven. And look what we see at the end of verse 7. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. You have a guaranteed arrival home to glory. Nothing will ever keep you out of heaven once you put your trust in him. Have you found him? I hope so. If not, he's available. He's looking for you. Are you following him? You need his strength. He finishes this paragraph with a prayer. Before I read that prayer, I want to tell you that I've done some backpacking and hiking, not only in Africa, but in the east, in the Smoky Mountains. And we always enjoyed camping. That was the best thing we ever did with our children growing up. It's their best childhood memories. But when our son, Sid, was coming to graduate his high school year of graduation, he said, I was thinking about celebrating graduation by, by a backpacking trip. And I said, that sounds like a great plan. Have a wonderful time. <laughs> he, said, he said, no, I meant like you and me, father, son, would do the backpacking trip. And I, I like camping and I like hiking, but I've never done really serious backpacking. And so he laid out a four-day trip, just four days, but about 37 miles, a full pack on the Appalachian Trail, connecting to it, coming back around. So it was a nice big circle. And uh, I had to get some equipment. So I went to the backpacking store. And on the backpacking store, you know those revolving shelves that have books that you can read? I saw a book on there. It said the Backpacker's Manual. And I thought, that's what I need. I pulled it off the shelf, and I looked in the front cover, and it said the Backpacker's Prayer. <laughs> now, it wasn't a Christian bookstore, you know. And I said, I want to see what this is. And so I read it. It's very short. The backpacker's prayer, quote, was, Lord, you pick them up, and I'll put them down. <laughs> I said, this is ridiculous. I put the book back. By the time we got to the end of that backpacking trip, I was praying the backpacker's prayer every step along the way. I looked like Jacob leaning on my staff, blessing his son. And, you know, there is a prayer that we pray, isn't there? Look what he prays in verse 8. Oh, Lord God, you have to add an O oh to your prayer. And he prayed, Oh, Lord God of hosts, we're not in this alone. Hear my prayer, and look what he says. Give ear, oh God of Jacob. Now, he could have said Abraham, Isaac. He could have said Joseph or David. He said Jacob. I'm glad he said Jacob. I remember another verse that says Jacob. It, it goes like this. Jacob, you worm. Of all the people he would choose, he chooses one that had the hardest time in his journey. He even had to put his hip out of joint one time to keep him on the straight and narrow. And it says, everyone appears before God in Zion in verse 7, and his prayer was to the God of Jacob. Listen, if Jacob can make it, <laughs> you can make it too. And we are all comforted with the strength along the way. How to follow God? You count on his strength. Lastly, verses 9 through 12 gives us the third paragraph. We won't speak much about it, 
because there's more to understand after we get to glory. But it's all about how to fellowship with God. He first speaks about the protection we have in verse 9. He says, O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. What a protection we have. The angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him and trust in him. We're safe. He is this great protection around us. When we fellowship with God, we need not fear anything to harm us because he is our protector. The worst thing that could happen to a believer, Nancy and I used to remind each other when we had some difficult times in Africa, the worst thing that could happen to me is I could die and go to heaven. That's not too bad, is it? Huh? He is our shield and protection. I'm glad that the Lord himself, as it says in verse 9, and look upon the face of your anointed, I'm glad the Lord himself is our shield. I love the hymn entitled, In the Beloved. One line goes like this in the chorus. In the beloved, God's marvelous grace calls me to dwell in his wonderful place. God sees my Savior, that's first, then he sees me in the beloved, accepted and free. I'm glad that when God looks at me, he sees Christ. I'm protected in him as my shield. Secondly, in verse 10, we see our provision of fellowship. A day in your courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So he speaks about the provision. We have an eternal home. One day we're going home. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's an eternal home. Not only that, it's a great place. It far excels compared to the very nicest places here on earth. That's why he says, a day in your courts, even outside your house, is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in some of the finest tents of wickedness here on earth. C.H. Spurgeon had a nice comment on this. He said, God's worst is better than the devil's best. It's true, isn't it? The best is yet to come. We have much to look forward to in our eternal home. And one day we'll all be safely home. That's what verse 11 tells us. In this provision, he not only provides us a wonderful destination, our eternal home, but he says he's going to get us safely home. And verse 11 expresses it this way. For the Lord God is a sun, that's the provision, and a shield, that's our protection we're talking about. The Lord will give grace and glory. Now think about it, grace and glory. Here's the way Brother Bramhall used to mention it. He said he'll give grace for the journey and glory for the destination. Isn't that the way it is? Absolutely. It was when I got on a plane in February, got through the ice to get through the airport. I was flying to suffer for the Lord in the Caribbean islands. And we got up through all that mess after they de-iced the wings of the plane, and we made it up to cruising altitude, and the pilot came on and he said, Nassau's weather report is 89 degrees, clear skies and sunshine. You know, that's the way it's going to be. Grace for the journey, yes. Glory for the destination. What will it be when we get there? It'll be all glory. And we'll enjoy seeing him on that day, the glorious one who outshines the sun. He finishes this great psalm 
with a promise. Verse 12, notice it. Uh, verse 11, the end of the verse. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Here's the way the New Testament says in Romans 8, 32. God who spared not his own son, that's Jesus Christ, but he delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? That's a great promise, isn't it? If we have Christ, what else could we ever want? And so he finishes, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Who trusts in you? You want blessing like finding him, following him, and fellowshipping with him? There's only one way to get it. Blessed is the man or woman, boy or girl, who trusts in you. That's how you find him. Have you found him? How do we follow him? Counting on his strength step by step. How do we fellowship? Enjoy his protection. Enjoy his provision. And count on his promise. What a great God we have. For this pilgrim psalm and for the song you have in your pilgrim journey, may the Lord use it to bless our hearts today, we pray. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, how thankful we are when we consider the greatness of your person, the wonder of your son, and the freeness of the gift of salvation. Father, we know tomorrow we're going to be selling, celebrating Independence Day, the freedom we have in this country. It came at a great cost of many lives being sacrificed. But Father, we also know that the salvation that you offer us, the freedom from sin and its penalty, came at an even greater cost. The perfect, sinless Son of God, your only begotten Son, laid down his life for us that we might live through him. Father, we pray that any who have never put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior would do so this very day. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us along on our journey pathway home, we pray in the name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.